Hello, and welcome to the Faithful Forebears. Episode 10, St. Francis of Assisi. Welcome back. So far in this show, we've seen people of varying notoriety. Some you've probably heard of before, like Hildegard or maybe Anselm. But others are less known, like Hrosvitha. Well, today we're going to be looking at probably one of the most famous people yet, St. Francis. St. Francis was and is quite popular for his work with the poor, his devotion to poverty, his care for the environment, and even the current Pope, Francis, took his papal name to honor this Francis. While the myths of St. Francis are certainly alive and well, I thought we could look at the historical man behind all these myths. And there certainly are a lot of myths and legends and different reports about Francis' life, but everyone agrees he truly was a devoted and humble Christian. But to understand him, as always, let's see the world in which Francis was born. So Francis was born in 1181, and that's just two years after our friend Hildegard of Bingen died. Remember, this time is often called the High Middle Ages, and imagine me using air quotation marks because that's just a title historians use. So European towns and cities were growing, and trade was picking up from its drop in the 900s and 1000s. The First Crusade had happened only 80 years before Francis was born, and since that time there had been a European kingdom in the Holy Land. But right around this time, Muslim forces were taking back Jerusalem from the Crusaders. The Church, as it has been in most periods, was trying to root out corruption and reform itself from the abuses of corrupt bishops and kings. And many of the common people were searching for a deep devotion in the face of a church with corrupt leadership and the worldliness of increased trade and increasingly urban populations. And several movements formed out of this situation. The first movement was called the Abigensians, who are also called the Cathars. Remember, we talked about them a little bit with Hildegard. So these Cathars, remember, were a lot like the Gnostic heretics from long ago in the church's history. And they believed that all physical creation was evil, and only the spiritual was good. In their theology, the devil, who is called Satan L, actually created the physical world, and that Satan was Jesus' brother. Only those who believed in Jesus and forsook the world could leave this evil physical world and join a good, purely spiritual one. Like I said, this heresy is similar to other old ones. And this particular one actually started in the Eastern Mediterranean, and after the Eastern Church dealt with it, it moved into Western Europe. And this movement not only thought the official church was wrong, they thought it was evil. They believed it was totally corrupt and teaching false doctrine. They promoted rigid asceticism, which means they would not eat meat or any other animal product, and they abstained from all sexual activity. This is because they saw those things as too connected with the evil in the world which apparently for some reason plants were not, but I guess that was because they came directly from the ground. Also, fun fact, they were allowed to eat fish. And this is because there was a common medieval belief that fish were generated directly from the water. So you have that. The group became very successful in what is now northern Spain and southern France and in the northwestern parts of Italy. They quickly became popular because many uneducated Christians really did not understand the differences between this and actual Christianity. 
and the confusion is somewhat understandable. In many places, the official bishops were becoming fat and lazy, while the Cathars were at least taking their beliefs seriously. Along with this, to many people's confusion, the Cathars would use very similar vocabulary, and would often only tell the more heretical beliefs to those higher up in their group. But this heresy did not end well, for the Cathars or for the church. When missionaries were sent and failed, the church turned to more brutal methods in dealing with it, and called for a crusade specifically against the Cathars and the nobles in the area who were harboring them. Other nobles, especially from northern parts of France, were happy to go on this crusade, not because of some high ideal to defend the church, but hoping they could get some land and some property out of it. On the ensuing crusade, which lasted several decades, it severely hurt the area. Along with this, one of the church's most infamous institutions was created to face it, the Inquisition. We'll talk about that more later, though, probably when you're not suspecting it. Another famous heretical group came into being at this time also. They were called the Waldensians, or the Waldenses. And this group, unlike the Cathars, never intended to be heretics or split from the church. And really, these Waldensians probably are not heretics at all. The group was created by a merchant named Valdez, or Waldez. And Valdez loved stories of old saints, which makes me like him already. And they inspired him to give up everything and live a poor life, learning all he could from scriptures, preaching, and teaching. And though he didn't know Latin, which most of the Bibles in Europe were at this point, he tried to find vernacular translations of parts of the Bible, and learn some of these translations by heart. But the local archbishop did not like this new group forming around Valdez, and put a ban on their preaching. Valdez and his followers decided to take their case to Rome, and see if the Pope would overturn their bishop's decision. But when they arrived at Rome, they were laughed at for being uneducated simpletons, and sadly their request was rejected out of hand. It was at this point that Valdez decided to go on his own path. The beliefs of this group were not nearly as exotic as the Cathars, and most Protestants probably won't find anything heretical at all. The Waldesians rejected purgatory and masses for the dead. They believed that the Bible, especially the New Testament, should be the foundation for all beliefs and practice. They also believed that study of the Bible and the vernacular was important and necessary. And they believed that lay people could celebrate communion without a priest, although that was only in times of necessity, when a priest could not be present. When the Crusades started against the more extreme Cathars, this group was unfortunately caught in the crossfire. However, they were much more responsive to the church's non-violent attempts to bring them back into the fold, and for the most part they did. Some, however, retreated into small communities into the Alps where they survived, all the way until the time of the Reformation, when they themselves joined Protestantism. So this is a little glimpse into the world of the late 1100s. It's a world of crusades, urban growth, corruption and reform in the church, heresy, and an intense seeking of spirituality by the common people. And this is the world that Francis was born into in 1181. So Francis was born to a wealthy Italian merchant who loved the country of France. In fact, he loved it so much that he nicknamed his son Little Frenchman, or Francesco. And little Francesco was a bit of a wild child, and he loved all the things that his father's wealth could afford him. He and his friends lived something like a 12th century Italian version of American graffiti, sneaking wine from their dad's wine cabinets, racing their Mustangs down the city streets of Assisi, and trying to impress girls. You know, normal stuff. And after this hedonistic youth, Francis decided that he wanted to be a soldier. 
This, he figured, was almost guaranteed to bring him glory, and who knows, maybe riches. So in his early 20s, he joined up with his compatriots when Assisi went to war with another city. It did not go well for him. His army was defeated, and he was captured, and had to be ransomed, which brings neither glory nor riches. But this didn't stop him. Once again, he joined up with the rest of his city to go on a crusade. Surely he would do better this time. But he only made it as far as the next town. Some complication forced him to stop, turn around, and in shame go back to his own city. Once back in his home of Assisi, he began to have a change of heart. Since Francis is now surrounded by so much legend, what happened next depends on who you ask. One of the most famous stories involves Francis meeting a leper on the road one day. While the leper disgusted him, he got off his horse, greeted the leper, and kissed his forehead. Then suddenly Francis realized this leper was Jesus, and when he'd gotten off his horse and looked back, the leper had disappeared. Another story says that Francis was praying in an old church when he heard the crucifix he was praying in front of speak and he heard Christ say, Rebuild my church. Francis decided to interpret this literally. So, to raise funds to rebuild the church, he took some of his father's wares and sold them, without his father's knowledge. His father was not happy with this, actually furious, and he brought him to the local bishops and the local judge, hoping to straighten Francis out. There, in front of his father, the bishop, and the judge, Francis officially renounced all of his inheritance everything his father had given him, including his clothes, which he took off and gave back to his father and walked away. Now, I don't know if this is all true, but it's very likely that all of these stories are at least partially true. So Francis left his rich life, and he began wandering the surrounding towns, wearing poor clothes and eating whatever was given to him. He tried to imitate Christ and help others around him as he could. Soon, this now very devoted man began to gather a group of followers around him. The group became big enough that Francis decided he needed to write official rules for his new followers. This group, in many ways, was taking on similarities to monks, and it was standard at the time that monasteries would have rules with which to guide their lives. And if the Pope would approve the rule, they would become an official order of monks in the church. So Francis took to writing it. He focused on making his rules very simple, and most being taken directly from the Gospels. Now, what exactly would happen to Francis on his way to Rome was pretty up in the air. Remember, this situation is not very unlike that man Valdez, and his ideas were pretty similar. And only a generation before, Valdez had been branded a heretic. Thankfully, the church handled Francis's request much better. While the Pope and Roman leadership did not really want any more monastic orders, they obliged especially since one of the cardinals had become friends with Francis. Francis's monks would be called the Fratas Minor, or the Lesser Brothers. Or for short, they would simply be called Friars. So Francis always worked to keep his organization simple, and did not much like doing organization of any kind. Complexity, he believed, could easily lead to corruption, and property would cloud the heart to discipline. As we will see, it was not easy to maintain this simplicity, because people quickly were flocking to this new monastic order. Francis did not really want to be an administrator. He just wanted to preach, evangelize, and meditate on God's word. But for the rest of his life, this would not be easy. Part of the simple philosophy of Francis included a love of God's creation. In many ways, this made Francis similar to Hildegard. Both saw the world as something hurt by sin, 
but still something intrinsically beautiful because it was created by God. In modern times, this is one of the things he's most remembered for. He is the saint who loved God's creation and all of God's creatures. There are popular legends about him preaching to birds and healing or taming wolves. He often called parts of creation his brother or sister. For instance, Francis would call the sun, brother sun, and the earth, sister earth. One of his most famous writings is called The Canticle of the Sun, also known as The Praise of Creation. It's important because it's a good hymn on its own, but it's also arguably the first piece of literature in vernacular Italian. Plus, it's the basis for a popular English hymn, All Creatures of Our God and King. Here's a little bit of that canticle. Be praised, my Lord, through all your creatures, especially through my Lord Brother Son, who brings the day, and you give light through him. And he is most beautiful and radiant in all his splendor. Of you, Most High, he bears the likeness. Praised be to you, my Lord, through Sister Moon, and the stars in heaven you formed them, clear and precious and beautiful. Praised be you, my Lord, through Brother Wind, and through the air cloudy and serene, and every kind of weather through which you give sustenance to your creatures. Praise be to you, my Lord, through Sister Water, who is very useful and humble and precious and chaste. Praise be to you, my Lord, through Brother Fire, through whom you light the night, and he is beautiful and playful and robust and strong. Praise be you, my Lord, through Sister Mother Earth, who sustains us and governs us, who produces varied fruits with colored flowers and herbs. So you can see there Francis, like Hildegard, saw creation as something good and wonderful that God held in beautiful balance. Francis also loved preaching, and he had dreams of preaching the gospel around the world. One of the places most especially close to his heart was the Middle East. Several times Francis tried to go to the Middle East, but he was always thwarted by personal health. Finally, during the Fifth Crusade, Francis was able to travel to Egypt. Francis was hoping that he could end the Crusades with gospel instead of force, and that the Muslim people could be brought to faith in Jesus. Francis already had enough fame and influence that he was able to gain audience with the Sultan of Egypt. He presented the gospel in the Sultan's court, much like our friend Cyril did back in episode 6. That was just about 400 years before Francis. But after many conversations with the Sultan in his court, Francis like Cyril, was ultimately unsuccessful. In one account, the sultan told Francis this, You have a beautiful religion, and I would be baptized, but I would be overrun and killed by my countrymen if I did. Now, while Francis was not an organizer, his new rule and organization was spreading quickly all around Europe. Even while maintaining a very humble life, he was quickly becoming something like a rock star. He was fairly young and joyful and artistic and friendly. Basically, everyone loved him and wanted to be like him. Many men joined his lesser brothers, a.k.a. friars, and an order of nuns was also created by one of his close followers, St. Clair. They became known as the Poor Clares. They're still around today. These orders became so popular, it would sometimes actually get out of control. Oftentimes, monasteries would have to limit who they would let in. And they wanted to make sure that the mother, sisters, brothers, and other family members would still be provided for if a man wanted to join. They too realized it's not exactly noble to become a monk just to get away from all your other worldly responsibilities. 
This deliberate limiting of members, along with some very reasonable and practical concerns, kept many common people from becoming monks. They realized they did have families they needed to care for, and it would not be good simply to abandon them. But these people still wanted to find ways to live like Francis. So, they found ways to live like him, without giving up the rest of their lives. So a group was formed that became known as the Third Order of Monasticism. It's called Third because the First Order was monks, and the Second Order was nuns. The Third Order did not take any vows, and they would still continue their day jobs and live with their families. But they would take part in fasting, prayer, and worship, in a similar way to monks. In effect, they were doing monasticism light. While this started with the Franciscan Order, Soon, it became a popular option connected with many of the monastic orders. Now, Francis may have also inspired another movement in northern France and the Low Countries like Belgium and the Netherlands. It was a group called the Beguines. This was not an official group, and they didn't really have any organization. Instead, it was simply a philosophy or a way to live. It was especially popular with women. There were no official rules and no official vows. Instead, these people were committed to living simply in small groups or with their families. They were also committed to poverty, chastity, and charitable works. However, the total lack of official church oversight made the Beguines always suspect to the church. Still, even without any church support, it was becoming pretty popular. These renewed commitments to the spiritual life were part of a great change happening in Christianity in Europe during this time. Francis was just one of several figures trying to get people back to the simplicity of the faith. Another was the founder of the Dominican Order of Monks, a guy named Dominic de Guzman. All of these popular forms of devotion were showing how Christianity had truly become a religion of the people in Europe. And this is a big deal. Remember, it was only three or four hundred years before this, in the seven and eight hundreds, that northern Europe was hearing about Christianity at all. But now Christianity's roots were deep, and it had become an irresistible part of the culture across all of Europe, north and south. Now, by the end of Francis's life, there were about 1,400 different Franciscan houses across Europe, along with 600 Dominican houses, and hundreds of other houses of different monastic orders. These orders, known as the Mendicant Orders, were focused on poverty, charitable works, and study and worship. As a side note, one of these orders was called the Hermits of St. Augustine, also formed in the 1200s. Now, this order is important to my own faith tradition because it would help form their most famous member, a guy named Martin Luther. These groups of monks were also important, not just because they inspired the common people to take their faith seriously, but also because they reignited a focus on missionary work. In fact, that guy, Dominic de Guzman, the founder of the Dominicans, formed his group specifically for the purpose of evangelizing to the Cathars. Remember, they're those heretics in southern France. And as we heard, Francis himself traveled to Egypt to evangelize the Muslims. But others in his order would travel even further. For instance, one Franciscan, a guy named John of Montecorvino, traveled through Persia, Ethiopia, and India, all the way to Beijing in China in the year 1294. This is right around the same time that Marco Polo was making his famous journeys. John would be fairly successful in his mission work and gather thousands of Chinese believers there. John's work got support from the church back in Europe, 
and the Pope even anointed him to be the Archbishop of China. Sadly, though it had some initial success, the church would soon collapse several decades after John of Monte Corvino's death. New rulers in China expelled all the Christians from China. After several decades in the popular eye, Francis was getting older, and he was getting tired of administering a multinational organization. He always pressed to keep the rules very simple, and always tried to shun wealth as much as possible. Francis strictly enforced the idea that monks could not own property of any kind. He was so set on simplicity and poverty that sometimes he'd come in conflict with people of his own order. For instance, there's one story of a young friar asking Francis if he could own a book of Psalms. St. Francis said to him this, When you have a Psalter, you will want a breviary. That's another prayer book. And when you have a breviary, you will seat yourself in a pulpit like a great prelate and will beckon to your companion, Bring me my breviary. Then Francis took some ash from a fire, scattered it over the head of the young monk, and said, There is your breviary. At one point, his dedication to simplicity and poverty almost forced him out of his own monastic order. He finally did resign in the year 1220 and lived quietly for the rest of his life. After his leave, though, the order changed greatly, much to Francis's sadness. Soon the monks were allowed to have property, and Francis feared this would create too much privilege and security, and the gospel would be forgotten. In these last few years, Francis's love of nature truly came to shine. It was at this time that he actually wrote his Canticle of the Sun, and he spent a lot of his time in solitude and prayer. It is at this time also when we hear stories of his receiving of the stigmata, that is, signs of Christ's wounds on his own body, something that would afterwards become known as a mark of extreme piety. Francis died in 1226, and there is a tradition that the first time his Canticle of the Sun was actually sung by someone was by two of his close friends as he lay on his deathbed. Francis was so popular that within two years of his death, he had been officially canonized as a saint, a process that usually takes much longer, sometimes even hundreds of years. Now, Francis had a great impact on the medieval church, and he still has impact on the church today. He reminds us how powerful simple living can be. He also reminds modern Christians that God's creation is important, and it's a wonderful gift to be respected and cared for. Because of his care for creation, still to this day, you can almost always find statues of Francis in gardening shops, usually with a deer or a bird. Thousands of stories and legends surround him, and people still remember his simple quotes. But I would like to note, real quick, that there are also many quotes that are falsely attributed to him. One such quote that I hear all the time is this, Preach the gospel. Use words when necessary. It's a nice little quote, but Francis never actually said that, though he did encourage his monks to preach through their actions along with their words. What he actually said was this, No brother should preach contrary to the forms and regulations of the Holy Church, nor unless he has been permitted by his minister. But all the friars should preach by their deeds. Francis did think preaching was important, but you better be living your words too. This makes a lot of sense because Francis was known as a very powerful preacher. So it's easy to see why Francis was so honored. He always strove for simple piety, and as much as any person can, he lived what he preached. He's a good example for Christians then and today. 
So that's all I have for St. Francis. I'm excited about the next episode because we will be looking at a type of person we've not yet looked at. So far we've seen priests and missionaries and monks and nuns. Even Hrosvitha and Hildegard were attached to convents. But our next person will be one who had a very secular calling. We will be looking at a king, King Louis IX of France. But you might know him better as St. Louis. So as I mentioned last time, there is now a Facebook page for the show. Check it out and give it a like. Also, if you haven't, check out the website at faithfulforebears.com. And don't forget to leave a nice little review on iTunes or Stitcher. And maybe tell me who your favorite person we've talked about so far is. I also love to hear any comments or questions you might have. And, like always, don't forget to tell a friend. I'm Eric Klassen, and thanks for listening.